You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 42, featuring Daredevil helping the Fantastic Four through a rough patch. And I don't mean Reed and Sue's relationship. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 42. I am J. David Weeder. You can call me Dave. And this is the podcast devoted to the comic book adventures of Marvel's man without fear, Daredevil. I told you last week that I was on just one of the guys talking about Plastic Man because I was obsessed with stretchy characters as a kid. The foremost being Plastic Man with Elongated Man being a second. I thought that was the power set that I wanted, because I imagined all the things that I could do, which are really childish now. Things like the walk to school, just pretty much stretching my legs till I had to step over the two blocks to school, being able to reach the nutty bars in the top cabinet, things of that nature. But having said all of that, while stretchy characters were kind of a fascination for me, Mr. Fantastic of the Fantastic Four was not as much on my radar. To be completely honest with you, as a kid, beyond the thing, the Fantastic Four were almost persona non grata to me. They just did not captivate me. In fact, it's only been in the last few years where the Fantastic cast has really sparked that interest in me, and I discovered the Fantastic Four, and I embraced them. Since then, I've read some great Kirby and Lee stories and some John Byrne stories and have fallen in love with the Fantastic Four. Looking at the story told in Fantastic Four number one, you can see why this would grab the readership. Fantastic Four number one begins with a gentleman shooting a flare in the air, a great plume of flame. And then we meet our team one by one responding to that signal. Sue Storm is at a social visit. She goes invisible to respond. So we understand that she is the invisible girl, later the invisible woman. Ben Grimm, a mysterious hulking figure in a fedora and trench coat, responds, sheds it, and we see the rocky texture of the thing. Johnny Storm is working on a car when he sees the flare, and he bursts in the flame as the second iteration of the Human Torch, and almost causes a plane wreck, which Reed Richards, aka Mr. Fantastic, solves by using his stretchy powers. In this first quick, rapid-fire sequence, we meet our team, we see their powers, we get a very quick study of who they are and what they do. In reality, it's barely scratching the surface, but we at least get the concept. And then we understand the origin, because we see that play out, and it's accidental. It's almost a form of trauma, and they're angry, and they're infighting, and their bitterness over getting these powers is not what you would expect. If we could suddenly bench-press a bulldozer, most of us would be psyched. So it was definitely off-model from what we would expect from superheroes. And beyond that, that first issue had a full adventure with the team fighting the Mole Man. It was very much one of the most complete comics of its time. Now, sure, number two was planned and even in the can at that point, but had there never been a number two, if this was intended to be a one-shot, the fan reaction would have pushed Marvel into getting this book on stands. It would have caused demand because not only was it a satisfying read, we were fascinated by these characters in this concept. And from there, of course, the line grew. The Hulk, Thor, Spider-Man, the X-Men, and eventually Daredevil. So if you're doing a Marvel show, it behooves you to have a Fantastic Four focus at some point. And luckily, we have just two Fantastic Issues, pun intended, to look at. 
So we pay our due to the Fantastic Four because without them, there would have never been a Daredevil. So in just a moment, we're going to spend some time with the FF. But first, a podcast promo break, and I'm going to play a promo for the Fantastic Cast because the subject matter definitely merits it. And it's a great show. Stephen Lacey and Andrew Leyland make a great, great podcast. And listen closely. I've played this promo on the show before, but I've never mentioned this. For those that don't know, if you're listening closely, you will hear yours truly doing the voice of the Hulk. So here is the Fantastic Cast promo, and I will be back right after that to cover Fantastic Four number 39. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the mole man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You athletes can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am a thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the Phantom is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatots, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak. Blind or hulk. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain until it has been drained of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.libsyn. Com. And we have returned with the Fantastic Four number 39, which shares a cover date with last week's issue of June 1965. And we have this cover that shows Daredevil leading the Fantastic Four down a New York street as the spectral figure of Doctor Doom looms over them. I will say this for the cover. Doctor Doom looks like a boss, but he's the only dynamic part of this cover. Otherwise, it's just, well the team and Daredevil walking down the street. And Daredevil seems to be saying, this way to the haagen guys, I smell butter pecan. And the thing is, it, it's not dynamic at all. They really are just taking a stroll. And again, we have a Mary Marvel Marching Society sign on the background. Very well done. And there's a bit of a spoiler on this cover because, yeah, the Fantastic Four are there, Daredevil's there. There's also what appears to be Ben Grimm. What? We'll find out what that means in just a moment, because we're going to be looking at a story entitled A Blind Man Shall Lead Them, written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Frank Giacoya, and lettered by Artie Simic. And if you want to read along, you can find this reprinted in Marvel's Greatest Comics number 31, Marvel Masterworks Volume 21, The Fantastic Four Volume 4 Hardcover, Essential Fantastic Four Volume 2, 
Villainy of Doctor Doom, a trade paperback from 2000, The Best of the Fantastic Four hardcover, and The Fantastic Four Omnibus Volume 2, in addition to our normal spots of Comixology, Marvel Digital, and Marvel Digital Unlimited subscription service. Jumping into our tale. After a battle with the Frightful Four last issue, which resulted in a huge nuclear explosion, the Fantastic Four are plucked out of the deep by a submarine crew. Aboard the vessel, the team rests, but Reed's sleep is fitful and filled with nightmares of the recent battle. Later, in the mess hall of the sub, a very human-looking Ben Grimm finally addresses the elephant in the room. The FF have lost their powers. The family fears that they are nothing without their powers and they vow to find a way to get them back. They go to work as soon as they get to New York, finding a way to regain their gifts, and Reed uses technology to emulate their powers. The result? A remote-controlled thing robot, a harness for Sue that simulates invisibility, and a combustible bodysuit for Johnny. Unfortunately, the devices don't really work, and the Fantastic Four are left to ponder facing a world without their powers on a permanent basis. Alright, so let's talk about this segment here. Opening the story, we're kind of brought up to speed quickly through a blurb, and then we're dropped right into the story, which is nice. Keeps the story moving, keeps us interested. But the thing that stands out to me is the Fantastic Four are on a raft. And in, clearly this is from the boat, because looking at the end of last issue, the FF have been out to sea without that raft. When the explosion went off on the island, it was Sue's force field that saved them all. So I'm wondering if Sue may have been projecting that force field for up to 24 hours, which it says they've been in the water for, which had to be exhausting, but it proves a point I'm going to talk about more in a little bit. We move deeper in the story and we get another flashback to the battle. Now, it's nestled in all right, but clearly Stan and Jack weren't on the same page. Reading Marvel The Untold Tale, many writers and artists would attest to, well, Stan and Jack being on their own page, with Jack proposing story ideas that Stan really wasn't listening to because Stan was popping his own out, and the result would sometimes be, luckily, wonderful, but oftentimes confusing, thanks to the Marvel method, in which there's a basic plot presented, the artist draws that as they see fit, and then Stan would write the script. So luckily it doesn't detract too much from the story, but it definitely shows some of those gaffes that would occur when these two really weren't listening to each other. Not because they were mad, but because they're two creative people going down their own path. One of the standouts and the surprises in this issue was the concept that the Fantastic Four think that without their powers, they're nothing. Looking back at that first issue, the powers were looked at as a curse. They were a hindrance to living a normal life. Now they're a gift. Now they're reliant. And I don't understand this, because all members of the Fantastic Four had lives before being blasted with cosmic rays. Johnny could work on his hot rods, Ben could go back to being a pilot, Reed could work on his science. I don't understand that idea, and I wonder, have the Fantastic Four become reliant on their powers? Has this way of life become something that they're so used to, but they, they just can't imagine it without it? Because we're relatively early in their career, certainly they've done some relevant strides, but Still, they're not too far removed from the Fantastic Four that actually took that flight where they were bombarded by the cosmic rays. I wonder if it would be something like an addiction, or probably, to put it a little bit more succinctly, I think to me it would be something like being this session player who is suddenly made a part of the Beatles, a part of that world, and then you get dropped. Suddenly you're a solo artist. The only time you were great was when you were with that great band. I'm not sure, but it's certainly a surprise if you jump from the first issue to issue 39. Another surprise is Jack Kirby using black and white collage art. Again, from Marvel The Untold Tale, 
Kirby was really trying to push the boundaries, trying new things because their audience was primarily college-age kids. Now sure, kids bought the comics off the rack just like you and I did, but the college scene embraced it, which is how Stan kind of got his huckster image. He would do college tours. The Marvel characters were looked at as symbols to the counterculture scene. And that allowed Jack and other artists to really push the boundaries of what comic book art is, because you wouldn't see something like this in DC at this time. It's a gorgeous photo collage of basically a lot of science stuff, just a lot of paraphernalia. And the FF are in the foreground. And it really contrasts, and it stands out very, very harshly in the digital. I'm not sure what it looked like in print. And I say harshly not because it's bad, but because the differentiation is very, very blatant. And the thing that also stood out on this page wasn't just the image, it was the fact that Ben and Sue are really pushing Reed to get their powers back. They're relying on him, they're pushing him, unfairly, and suddenly Johnny... Bear in mind, Johnny is a teenager, he's the youngest member of the team. But Johnny is the voice of reason. So you're telling me Reed is pushing himself and trying hard to get this to happen, and his best friend and best girl are just up his butt crack about it, and the teenager is the one that seems to be the level head. Definitely, definitely interesting. Reed, looking at him here, I mentioned he, he wasn't on my radar as a stretchy character, but I've always leaned a bit more DC than Marvel. And I think to expound upon that, Reed didn't stand out because he just wasn't as charismatic or funny as Plastic Man. He didn't have the goggles or the jokes. He had great temples, like a father figure. Now, being older, he also had his head in the books and science. He was an odd choice to lead the group, and kind of one of the reasons it works. Because Reed isn't charismatic, he's not dashing, he's not Superman or Captain America, he's not a swashbuckler, he's kind of a wet blanket. And to me, the way he stretched never seemed as chaotic, or did it have the manic potential of Plastic Man? Because, well, Mr. Fantastic seemed more limited to me, and to some extent he might be, because that's the way his character is written. And while all of that was not a draw to me as a child, now I see the genius in it. Because the square nature is really the selling point. That's what makes this team different, is they are not archetypes. They've become that, but at that time they were really breaking the mold. But the more I look at this team, they stand better together than separate. They help each other become fully realized characters. They are a family. They are almost like a circulatory system. And you can bring in somebody like Luke Cage or the She-Hulk, and it's fun and it works, but you'll never be able to replace what the family aspect brings to the table. It's what makes them extremely special. Now, speaking of special, and I don't mean in a good way, the robot version of the thing is very unsettling. We get used to the thing as being kind of the personality of the group, and here he is, this suit or this robot just laying on the table, you know, like he had a stroke. And then we have Johnny, well, he looks like Leapfrog, or a motion capture suit, but the thing stands out because this is not Reed's best idea. Ben even says, maybe I'm not the guy to do this, it's a remote control suit. And Reed should realize that a remote control doesn't equate to the experience of actually punching something as the thing. It's kind of like playing Grand Theft Auto, the video game, and driving a car within that versus driving the real thing. In the game, you start taking chances because you're safe. It's not the real deal, but if you're out delivering pizza, after playing the game for a long time, you suddenly find yourself thinking, hey, I think I can jump that, before your common sense kicks in. There's just a, too much of a difference in the stimuli. It's not a good replacement. But we do get Kirby Tech. What is Kirby Tech? Kirby Tech is exactly what it sounds like. It's technology as drawn by Jack Kirby. And it is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing because he can make machines look completely ridiculous. And yet, at the same time, they're plausible, 
and they're just a treat for the eye. And it's a paradox in itself because we shouldn't look at something that's just ridiculous and then have it go, yeah, they could totally do that. Now, all of the bickering, all of the pushing of Reed is taking its toll because Reed's being a total dick. And the thing about Reed that stands out to me, something that's kind of a double-edged sword in his character, is that Reed always has to take everything onto his shoulders, which is kind of the metaphor he stretches himself to help people. But it also makes Reed a bit of a drama whore. A little bit of guilt about Ben's fate and Reed really trying to cure it is one thing. Reed consistently whining because he can't help his best friend. After a while, you learn to cope with this, and Reed never does. This is a theme that keeps coming back again and again and again, and Reed never seems to really evolve beyond that, in some respects at least. And let me be clear on what I'm saying, Reed has evolved as a character overall, but that aspect remains there like a thorn in the side. But there is a logic to why they want to rebuild their powers. Even though this is fairly early in the FF's career, they've had a storied career already. Fantastic Four came out of the box ready to go. You had Mole Man, you had Doom, you had Namor. This book hit on all cylinders and it moved fast. Because of that, the Fantastic Four have made enemies. They're sitting ducks right now. If the world finds out they don't have powers, well, the Baxter building would be screwed. Which is pretty much the premise of the story. So, what happens next? How does this go down? Well, for that, let's jump into part two of the story. In the great and honorable country of Latveria, Dr. Doom is accidentally freed from the hypnosis that the cursed Reed Richards placed on him. Doom realizes that his memories of defeating the Fantastic Four in FF Annual Number 2 are false, and he flies into a rage. He takes off for New York to take his righteous revenge on the Fantastic Four. Meanwhile, in New York, Matt Murdock arrives at a lonely warehouse to answer a summons made by the FF. He finds the team adapting to their tech-based power simulators, including Reed, who wears a harness with extending robotic prosthetics. Reed explains to Matt that, in event that something should happen to the Fantastic Four, Matt will be their power of attorney. But the details aren't hashed out before an explosion rocks the warehouse. Reed tells Matt to flee, as further, smaller stun blasts are hurled at the team. Matt slips out of sight and dons the crimson duds of Daredevil and aids the FF as they struggle with the surprise attack. The robo-thing fails to hold up a wall, and Johnny's flame suit gets snuffed, but luckily Daredevil helps get the Human Torch out of the line of fire. Daredevil helps navigate through the dark warehouse to a vantage point where Reed and the others spot an aircraft at their headquarters, the Baxter Building. Reed realizes that they are being attacked from within their own home, and the attacker is their arch-nemesis, Doctor Doom. Okay, we're gonna stop there once again. We open in Doom's castle. And Doom is sitting on a throne that maybe, just might, be more pimtastic than Namor's. I think we'd have to have a reality show where they really compare their thrones. And let's add Prince and Sean Bean from Game of Thrones into it. Which would be kind of a spoiler because we know Sean Bean would die. But Doom has this illusionist entertaining him. Which happens to work out well for Doom, but the illusionist has a gentleman floating and a large block floating on top of him. That's some showmanship. And think about Latveria is it's known for its shows. Next week, Robert Goulet is going to be recording a new album live from Latveria. Now, Latveria, the main question that comes to me is, where is it? Well, looking at the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, it says it's bordered by Transylvania, which is actually Romania, as well as Hungary and Serbia. So I took to the maps, I looked at those borders, and based on some of the areas that's being spoken of, it would be near the Romanian Commune, and I'm going to say this wrong because I cannot find a proper pronunciation, so forgive me, 
but it would be near the Romanian commune of Beba Vece, which is a very small area right on those borders, upper left-hand corner of Romania near the two borders spoken of with Serbia and Hungary. According to statistics, Latveria has a population of 500,000, so basically two moderate-sized cities worth of population. Languages are German, Romani, and when you combine Romani with Hungarian, it creates a dialect called Latvarian. There is one airport in the whole country, and that's near the capital of Doomstadt. Yes, it's called Doomstadt. It's a theme because other cities include Doomsburg, Doomsdale, Doomton, and Doomwood. See? Theme. Looking at the real-world location, a lot of that is just rural farmland, and I was really, really hoping I'd find a castle that I could point to and say that's Castle Doom, but unfortunately there are no Romanian outposts in that area that I could find on the map. As far as that hallucination, what happened in FF Annual 2, to break it down very simply, is a battle of wills. There was a machine that allowed Reed and Doom to do a literal battle of wills. And thanks to some berry juice, the accursed Richards had an illusion-casting ability. So what Doom saw, thanks to the battle of that will, was Reed being vaporized, and Doom left because, well, he figured he'd won. When he finds out that that wasn't true and that he was tricked, Doom bitch-slaps the illusionist and takes off. Now, he's heading for New York. Based on Bucharest, Romania, which is the closest I could figure it, we're looking at an 11 to 13 hour flight, which actually plays out fairly well with the time frame we're looking at. But then we come back to New York ourselves, nine pages into the story, and Matt finally appears. I know, it's probably the longest we've gone without Matt or Daredevil. And, well, the FF were kind of counting on Matt being actually blind to hide the fact that they don't have powers. Now, sure, there's a certain level of security involved, but let's be honest, there's probably a little bit of vanity and embarrassment. It's almost like they were hiding a handicap. In a way, it's kind of douchey to assume that Matt's handicap would hide their handicap. In another, well, it's kind of a smart move to ensure that nobody finds out they, they don't have powers. Because looking at them, the harnesses and the robots, they seem so much less majestic. And the thing is, they're trying to emulate their original powers. Which I'm sure, yes, that's what they're used to, but if you have this option to simulate powers, why not try new powers or new techniques? And the only thing I can come to is it would end up with a lot of fighting because one person would want that power, Johnny would want it, there would be fighting and they would change their mind, you know, just that whole headache. But we don't get too far into that because the blasts start happening and, well, all the toys start failing. And Reed is smart enough to know that the blast was only the toy with them. It wasn't strong enough to hurt them because Doom is sadistic. He had them dead to rights. He could destroy them at any point. But simple vaporization is just beneath Doom. And when I say the toys don't work, I mean every invention we saw utterly fails. And luckily with this, Daredevil's in his element. He's used to being the underdog. So he's able to swoop in and help everybody out. And of course the attack is coming from the Baxter building, so I guess Doom showed up, knocked on the door, found it open, walked in, found some porridge. There'd only be three because Re Suze would be invisible. The others would be too hot, one's too rubbery, one was too hard. You know, that whole chestnut. So he starts hurling blasts at him. And you just picture kind of a Home Alone type scenario where he's slapping aftershave onto his face. He's just yelling, Doom all up in this bitch! That, that probably didn't happen. You can assume that's apocryphal. But I'm sure he did some sort of terrible pranks before revealing himself because he found himself alone in the Baxter building, which is supposed to be one of the most secure buildings in the world. But none of that matters to Doom. But we have the FF under fire. Doom has the high ground. So let's jump back in the story and see what occurs to wrap this up. 
Modesty is not Doom's strong suit, so he blasts a message into the sky declaring that the Fantastic Four will die by his hand. Then he sends their Fantasticar to do the job with the components splitting apart and each one trying to pulverize an individual member of the team. Daredevil helps them dodge the dangerous vehicle, but when Doom generates a tornado, things get worse. Daredevil helps the FF through the smoke and rubble and then assists Reed in chucking large gas canisters into the cyclone which reacts properly with the elements that power the vortex and disables them. But Doom has realized the truth. This stranger has taken the lead because the Fantastic Four are powerless. Doom then launches a force beam missile locked onto the heartbeat of its target and it begins firing blasts at Reed and Daredevil. Luckily, Daredevil lassos the missile with his billy club line and then he decides to head to the Baxter building to act as a distraction for Doom to allow the FF to advance. Daredevil makes his way across a high wire line as Doom shoots projectiles at him, but Daredevil is able to dodge them. However, he remains a sitting duck in the sights of Doom. The FF are scattered below following the tornado and the members of the team each move closer to the Baxter building, heading for a final confrontation with Doctor Doom when the issue ends. That's right, a heck of a cliffhanger. So Doom likes to communicate with skywriting, and the Fantastic Four will die at the hands of Doctor Doom. It's not quite as warm and cozy as, say, Surrender Dorothy or Eat at Joe's, but those were taken. And then Doom uses their own car to come after the Fantastic Four. That's like trying to run somebody over in their own Honda Accord. Not only is it kind of beneath Doom, to be honest, it's against the guy code. And I know Doom isn't one to adhere directly to the guy code, but there are some things that are sacred. And luckily, Daredevil was there to save the Fantastic Four's bacon. He's not so B-less now. Where's the FF's Eisner Award for Best Ongoing Series? Hmm? Oh, I see on your mantle you have the Best Limited Series. How quaint. And you know, if you think I'm being mean, I did a lot of work for that gag. I learned that the Fantastic Four Unstable Molecules won the award in 2004 for Best Limited Series while Daredevil won it in 2012 for Best Ongoing. So, now that I've explained the joke, it's not as funny, but for those facts, you're welcome. And if that wasn't enough, Doom rummages around the Baxter building and finds a supersonic air displacer, which is invented for weather control. But we never see this again. We still have crappy weather. Thanks, Doom. Now, I want to say this about Matt's character. Daredevil could have easily cut out at this point. Most of the main brunt of the danger is over, and this is really the Fantastic Four's problem. But he stays, because he's already invested in this, and let's be honest, Daredevil's a good guy to have in your corner. So he's in it to win it, and before the FF split up, Sue makes sure Reed knows that she loves him, which is sweet. Now, more so than Reed, Sue was a character that I didn't get for the longest time. But of the team, she was the first one to click. She's the first one I got, because originally I saw her as weak, with a lame power. And I could not have been more wrong. The power has many uses, defensive and offensive, and Sue is really the center of the team. She is the heart and soul. If we're looking at the team as an individual being, made up of multiple parts, Reed is the intellect, but that's a pure intellect. Sometimes he lacks common sense or any sense of emotion. Johnny is the inner child and the ego, the brash adventurer, while Ben is the physicality and the assertiveness, the strength. Sue, however, is the emotional stability and grounded center. The team functions as a whole because of Sue. Now granted, for a long time she was an underserved character. She was kept from contributing because she was seen as the damsel in distress. Thankfully, that changed. And Sue remains my favorite member of the FF. Yes, there's a certain MILF factor to her. There's also a certain den mother factor. But that's what makes her great. 
She's an every woman in an extraordinary situation, and she excels. She is the glue of the Fantastic Four. So I'm quite enamored with Sue Richards, even though she's Sue Storm here. I'm also enamored with Doom, because as villains go, you don't get much better than Doom, and Doom realizes that the FF don't have powers. Now think about this. I mentioned he's sadistic. Doom knows they don't have powers, that they're sitting ducks. He's fully aware of this. He could easily wipe them out, but he's evil, therefore he must toy with them, Austin Power style. And the Force Beam Missile, this thing's ridiculous. This is, of all the inventions that are thrown, this is easily the most ridiculous. It's the cellophane S of the issue. It's just very inconvenient. It doesn't prove to be much of a challenge. And then the story leads right up to a climax with everyone heading for the Baxter building and a wonderful cliffhanger. So, what is my final verdict on Fantastic Four number 39? This was a great setup. The Fantastic Four are on track to learn that the superpowers don't necessarily make the superhero. We have a plausible in-story reason for Matt to arrive, and an even more plausible reason for Daredevil to assist the Fantastic Four, who are normally capable on their own right, and Daredevil would be, well, a little bit underfoot. Most of the story treads water a bit until Doom shows up, it becomes magnificent, but... Ultimately, the reason this draws me into it is it's a battle with no powers. So we're dealing with the Fantastic Four and Daredevil at their most vulnerable against not just any arch enemy, but the arch enemy, probably the biggest, most ubiquitous enemy in the Marvel Universe. And this is an enemy with every advantage. Not only the FF powerless, he's got their base. He's got all of their tech. They're completely, hopelessly outmatched and it creates a compelling read that has you chomping for the next issue. Now we just have to wait one week. Imagine having to wait a whole month. That's why I'm glad we only have a weekly schedule. Speaking of next week, as we come to the end of another episode, next week we pick up with Daredevil and the Fantastic Four battling Doctor Doom at the Baxter Building. Will the Fantastic Four and Daredevil reclaim the building? Will Marvel's first family get their powers back? What does a cartoon have to do with all of this? Find out the answers to these questions and more in seven days. Until then, remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one they call a man without fear. Never far away whenever things is near. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, he must hide his sadness and
Friday, when you hear his name. 